0: This is a Vault Studios production.
1: The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of experts in their field and do not reflect the opinions or views of Vault Studios or Tegna. Additionally, all suspects are presumed innocent until proven guilty in a court of law, and any and all crimes are alleged until a court finds otherwise. I'm Eric Flack. This is Anything You Say. An inside look at the tactics the experts use to get a suspect talking.
2: I know I know you want to tell us. I, I can I
3: can see it in your face. So few people will believe that a person would confess to something they didn't do, especially when the stakes are pretty high. You do have a right to remain silent.
1: On November tenth, 2010, thirty-one year old Tina Herman and her two kids, ten year old Cody Maynard and 13-year-old Sarah Maynard, and a family friend, 41-year-old Stephanie Sprang, all went missing from the family's home in Knox County, Ohio. That's a mostly rural county in the northeastern part of the state.
3: Clues to what happened to this mother, her two children, and her best friend are scarce.
1: Community members joined authorities in searching for them, fanning out across Knox County throughout the rest of the week
4: deputies have surrounded the home of Tina Herman. Now tomorrow, the support continues to roll in. Tomorrow, a number of neighbors plan to meet at 7 a.m. at the Brown Environmental Center to search the surrounding area. After days of
1: searching, investigators recovered a handful of items connected to the case, including trash bags and a tarp. A Walmart receipt and surveillance footage would lead them to the person who purchased those items.
4: The Knox County prosecutor says investigators relied on barcodes to pinpoint the date of purchase. And right there on surveillance video, they found Matthew Hoffman meticulously selecting trash bags from store shelves. That break in the case led investigators straight to the suspect's home.
1: Four days after Herman and her two kids and her best friend were last seen, A SWAT team in Knox County, Ohio, busted into Hoffman's residence. They quickly located and arrested their suspect upstairs. As they proceeded to search the rest of the home, they found something unexpected, something strange. The whole place, it was packed with leaves. They were everywhere, bags of them lining the walls and piles covering parts of the floor. And when officers made their way down to the basement of the home, they discovered even more leaves but that wasn't all in a crawl space on top of a makeshift bed of leaves they found 13 year old Sarah Maynard she'd been held against her will for days but most importantly she was alive
0: Hoffman was arrested on Sunday the girl was found bound and gagged at his Columbus Road home in Mount Vernon the girl is now with family
1: but the three others Sarah's mom brother and that family friend they weren't in Hoffman's home
0: There could be a chance that these folks uh, may still be alive. But we, like I said yesterday, we have to be very realistic that uh, everything uh, evidence-wise and that the time period, no one's heard or seen from them. The likelihood is, of course, that that they are not alive.
1: Alive or not, perhaps the only person who could lead authorities to Tina Herman, Cody Maynard, and Stephanie Sprang was Matthew Hoffman. Following his arrest, Hoffman was taken into an interrogation room at the Knox County Sheriff's Office.
4: Hey, Matt. Matt, I'm Roger Brown. I'm a detective here at the Sheriff's Office. Okay. Okay. you want to take your hat and stuff off?
2: Coat? So basically, what I first noticed uh, when Matthew was brought into the police department, he's sitting there. He's uh, handcuffed behind his back. He's wearing a heavy winter coat. Uh, He has a winter hat on. Uh, He looks very hot and uncomfortable.
1: This is Tammy Lee, an agent with the Colorado Bureau of Investigation in Denver. If her voice sounds familiar, well, that's because you heard it on the very first episode of Anything You Say, which looked at the interrogation of Chris Watts in Colorado. Lee was actually one of the agents who interrogated Watts over the course of two long days. She knows what it's like to sit across from a murder suspect for hours on end.
2: No one's really talking to him. No one's uh, making small talk with him. Uh, he's not offered any water, coffee. There's no joking going on. Everything at that point seems very serious. Uh, the room seems actually very cold, um, which many times is on purpose. Uh, a lot of times, you know, you don't want other people to interact with your suspect. Uh, you want to be able to come in and be the person that's, you know, going to break that cold tone or continue it, depending on how the suspect reacts.
1: But in this case, the suspect doesn't react, at least not verbally.
4: I think you know what what we want to talk about, but we need to find some some people. Matt, can you hear me?
1: As Detective Sergeant Roger Brown and Lieutenant Gary Roller of the Knox County Sheriff's Office ask questions Hoffman, he just sits there, silent, staring down at his handcuffs, refusing to give them even the most basic information.
4: Matt, do you go by Matt or Matthew? We'll give you a minute, man, if you need to think a little bit. Just tell us when you're ready.
2: It becomes really difficult when a suspect decides not to talk. Um, We're kind of... As detectives usually scrambling, um, we're just trying to fill that silence most of the time with information, um, not letting the suspect, uh, forget about why he's there, putting, you know, information about the case to the suspect, trying to appeal to him on some level to get him to talk. But it becomes very, very frustrating. I can't imagine a more frustrating, uh, interrogation with a suspect than one that refuses to talk just flat out won't say anything.
3: Matt, are you here with us?
1: Matt. Hoffman continues to sit in silence for about 10 minutes, almost completely motionless. That is, until Detective Sergeant Brown introduces the idea of closure.
4: You know, other people, there's family members out there of other people, and they all they want is closure. That's all they want. They've been up for days like you and I have, you know?
1: Hoffman, he still doesn't say anything, but he does gesture with his hands, thumping a closed fist on his chest, putting his hands together and then twisting them open.
2: So we know that the word closure to Matt was very significant uh, because after Sergeant Brown had brought it up. Um, that is when Matt motions to his heart and kind of signals that it's beating or it's possibly in pain, and then he kind of does a motion with his hands like uh, his heart is breaking.
4: Heart hurts. I don't. I, I don't understand sign language,
2: man. And it kind of leaves Sergeant Brown to try and um, surmise, you know, through his actions what he's actually trying to say, and so he kind of asks, asks Matt you know, is your heart breaking? And Matt, you know, kind of nods in agreement that that's what he was trying to say.
4: Is that your heart? your are heart? Broken. Your heart's broken? Because of what happened? No. Someone broke your heart?
2: You know, and this is the first time that Matt actually gives some sort of response to anything that's been said so far. Um, and it kind of, you can kind of tell in the room how it kind of just, breathes life back into the investigators and they're like, okay, we can go, you know, another 30 minutes. We can go another 40 minutes. Like, you know, that's what they're thinking at that point. They're both exhausted. They've been working days on end. And the fact that Matthew is now starting to respond, even if it's just nonverbal using, you know, sign language to them, it's like, okay, we've just broken through a little bit and Matt is responding to us.
1: But this breakthrough, if we want to call it that, It's followed by more silence, a lot more silence, as the detectives continue to ask their questions.
2: They're peppering Hoffman with questions and statements, um, just trying to elicit any type of response, um, even while Matt remains basically comatose and stoic.
4: I know you can talk to me, man. What do you want from us? Tell me what you want from us you got to talk to me. We talk to a lot of people before we come to see you, so we know you can talk.
2: When you have a suspect that refuses to talk, I mean, it's all about patience. It's all about perseverance. Who is going to give up first? And you never want to be the one that's going to give up first as being a detective. You want to wait him out. You want to... um, exhaust them. You want to let them know, you know, this can go on forever. You're going to be the one that cracks before I do.
1: One of the strategies Agent Lee notices the detectives using to try and get Hoffman talking is essentially the good cop, bad cop thing you see in movies and TV shows. Sergeant Brown is taking a more direct, authoritative tone, whereas Lieutenant Roller, he's relaxed, understanding.
2: When one interrogator, you know, kind of takes that role of, you know, the authoritarian or the father type figure um, and then they leave the room, especially like in this case, Lieutenant Roller immediately takes his chair and uh, begins talking to Matt, almost like a big brother. I just want to talk to you.
3: All right. But if you don't want to talk to me, that's fine. Got no problems, man. No problems with that at all. But I'd like to talk to you.
2: And that is very significant and it's very common, commonly used in interrogations um, where one will, you know, have kind of a specific role uh, to the suspect. And then once that that person leaves, another one kind of feels another role. If you want
4: to talk to Gary, I'll leave. If you want to talk to me, Gary can leave.
1: As the two detectives take turns, over an hour goes by without so much as a single word from Hoffman. It's not clear if the detectives are any closer to getting Hoffman to talk, let alone getting him to answer questions about the case. So why continue? Why stay there with him, asking the same questions over and over? Well, Agent Lee suggests that, as an interrogator, it's important to show a suspect that you're not going anywhere, that if they're willing to stay in that room and sit there, then so are you.
2: So it may seem strange for people, you know, outside of law enforcement to wonder why these detectives stayed in a room so long with someone who was not giving them any information and refusing to respond at all. And for us, you know, Matthew is not asking for an attorney, he's not asking to leave, and we we know as investigators that Matthew at the end wants to relieve the pressure of everything that's happened. We know that he doesn't want to leave that room unless he tells the truth. Um, that's just basic human instinct. So, you know, we have, they have missing, you know, they have three missing people, uh, still, and they're getting a lot of pressure. And there's no way those investigators who are that dedicated, who have been working days on end on this case are going to give up and leave that room. They are setting the tone that, you know what? I don't care if you don't want to talk to me. If you're just going to sit there, we're not going to leave. We're not going anywhere.
1: Also, keep this in mind, this interrogation, it's not just about Hoffman, it's about finding out what happened to those three people who are still missing.
2: You can see it on their face, the amount of pressure that they're under. Even if, you know, there aren't people knocking at the door saying, hey, you know, have you Got any more information? You can see their phones going off. You can see them getting text messages. There are hundreds of people looking for these missing, this missing family and neighbor, and they're very concerned. Um, but at the same time, they know, Hey, this guy's not saying anything, but if we turn up the pressure, what is going to happen? What, what could be the result of that? And that could be that Matthew says, you know what? I'm done. I don't want to be here anymore. I want to leave. I want to go back to my jail cell, whatever it is. And then they have nothing. So there's this delicate balance and almost a dance with Matthew that they need to try and get information, but not under so much pressure that he shuts down. Because the second he shuts down, then no one wins. And they are the direct line of communication to the people out in the field trying to find these people. And if they stop getting information from Matthew, their information flow stops, and everyone is at a loss.
1: So the detectives, they stay the course, hoping that something they say will get through to Hoffman.
4: This sucks. This is one of the worst interviews I've ever had to do, Matt. I've been up for 24 hours, over 24 hours at this point. I'm becoming a little emotional myself. I'm thinking back because I have to keep talking about it, Matt. What the house looked like. The locations in the house. Where things went bad. And I need your help, man. I need your help. The family needs your help. And you need your help. Get it off your shoulders. Write it down. Give me a location. Give me a direction. Give me a place. I don't care. I, I don't care at all. I want to quit talking to you, Matt, as much as you want me to quit talking.
2: To me, Matt just sitting there um, listening and not saying anything, uh, you know, most of the time his eyes were closed. And it was one of those things. It was like okay, I don't have to look at you. I don't have to see what's happening around me. But the greatest part about that was that he could not shut off his ears. He had to take in every piece of information that the detectives were feeding him. And honestly, I think he was more inquisitive to know what they knew um, because— while he's sitting there, he's learning about the case. He's learning about information that the detectives are sharing with him or conversations that they're having with other people. Um, you know, whether true or not, you know, the condition of Sarah, whether they found, found the bodies. Um, you know, sitting there is actually an advantage to him because he's learning about the case as time goes on, just even listening to the detectives talking to him.
1: After nearly four hours, a new interrogator, Agent Joe Dietz, with the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation, replaces those two detectives. Hi, Matt. Agent Dietz focuses the conversation, if we can call it that, on Sarah, explaining he's been down at the hospital with her, getting her story and making sure she's okay. And then, finally, Hoffman says something.
0: I can't tell you anything because I don't know. You don't know? I, I knew I must have done something wrong. And I found her in my house. She tied up. And so I took care of her. I don't really know anything else.
2: The fact that Hoffman started talking was a huge win for investigators at that point. It doesn't matter what he said. The fact that he was talking, we can work with that. We, you know, he's actually, he actually gave a ton of information in just those three statements that he said, when he said, I knew I must have done something wrong. I found her in my house and I took care of her. He's acknowledging a huge part of the case um, to them at that moment. And that is huge.
3: At what point did you find you're tied up in your house?
2: Thursday
3: Thursday did you ask her did you speak with her about you know what happened how did you get here you know anything like
0: that? She said I'd done it I figured I had done something I didn't know I just could try to put pieces together.
3: did you recognize her as someone that you had seen before and you know did you realize that this is a person you'd seen before that now was in your house or I don't know didn't right? make that connection. don't know her.
1: This was the first sign in hours that the interrogators, that they might be getting somewhere. But a few seconds later, Hoffman puts his head down on the table and he says he doesn't want to talk anymore. And then he just goes back to sitting in silence for the rest of what would end up being the first of multiple interviews. The next day, Hoffman, he comes back in. But this time it's with FBI Special Agent Kristen Cadu, who simply introduces herself to Hoffman as Chris.
2: Hi, Matt. Hi, my name is Chris. I wanted to talk to you for a second if I could. Just going to close the door. How are you doing? I immediately noticed she looked so friendly. She was wearing this yellow, bright-colored sweater cardigan. Um, she has no visible firearm that you could see, um, and her demeanor just seems very sweet, motherly she immediately introduces herself to Matt. She calls him Matt, like, hey, it's your nickname. Hey, don't worry, call me Chris. She doesn't even say, you know, I'm FBI Special Agent Chris Cadu. She just introduces herself as Chris. She's trying to make it as friendly as possible. And to me, she comes across as this most motherly figure to him. Well, I just wanted to talk to you briefly and make sure you're doing okay and see how everything's you look pretty
1: exhausted. Unlike the previous interrogators, Special Agent Cadu doesn't bring up Sarah or Sarah's missing family members right away. Instead, she makes the interview about Hoffman, about how he's doing, about how he's feeling.
2: I think she realized early on that the prior interviews where they tried to appeal to Matthew by saying, you know what, you should do this, you should tell the truth out of compassion for Sarah did not work. So at this point, you know, that she switched tactics and at this point she's in there trying to convince him that she has compassion for him, specifically like his own mother would have compassion for him. So I think her switching from, hey, we're not going to talk about, you know, the compassion for Sarah anymore. We're going to talk about my compassion for you. I feel bad that you're in this situation and I want to help you out of it. I'm going to be your lifeline. I'm going to be the person that you can count on uh, to go through this with you and walk through the fire with you.
1: After about 30 minutes, that approach, it starts to pay off when Hoffman finally starts to speak again. In a voice barely above a whisper, Hoffman says he thinks he's crazy, that he knows he must have done something bad, but he doesn't know what it was.
3: I don't know if those other people are. What other people? <laughs> What's those guys grilled me about
2: yesterday?
0: Well, I'm concerned
1: about you right now. Even after this, Special Agent Cadu continues to focus on Hoffman, setting aside the circumstances to show empathy and to try to relate to him.
2: I think most investigators find it easier than we want to believe to try and relate to suspects. And the reason for that is because we understand the greater good that can come from it. Um, We understand that, you know, trying to relate to a suspect, even if it's something horrible, you know, sexual assault of a child, uh, murder, kidnapping, anything like that, um, you know, if we can pretend to relate to that and it ends up making that person confess and getting some closure for those victims, it's all worth it.
1: Hoffman, he goes quiet again for a little while. But later on, as he and Special Agent Cadu eat pizza together, he asks her some questions about the FBI, about training at Quantico, and having a sense of purpose. He even talks a little bit about his own personal life, about his criminal history, about some time he spent living in Colorado.
0: So I did go out to Colorado after I graduated high school. Did you? Where in Colorado? Steamboat.
2: Now, where
0: is that in relation to Denver? Is it close? It's the <clears throat> northwest part of the state. Okay. And so I had the antenna going skiing. I don't want snowboarding, but the ski town USA.
2: You know, we see numerous hours of Matthew being talked to by numerous male investigators. And it's really not until uh, Special Agent Cadu walks in the room and you know, has this sweet motherly demeanor that we really see that Matthew kind of uh, changes. He, you know, now becomes inquisitive about her life and, you know, her job, which we had not seen before. Matthew had not engaged any of the other investigators, you know, about personal um, aspects of their life like he did with Special Agent Cadu.
1: Even though Hoffman is still not giving answers about the case, Agent Lee does see value in the fact that Hoffman is opening up a little at all.
2: She's building that rapport. And even though Matthew's not giving specific details about the case, he's not, you know, talking about what happened or where the bodies are located, he's he's engaging special agent could to the point where, you know, we've opened the lines of communication. He realizes, you know, we're good people. Um, you know, we have his best interest at heart. Um, she's trying to convey, you know, you know, I'm like your family, you know, I'm going to make sure that, you know, you have food and water and t- you're taken care of. And all of that goes to play a huge role, even down the line of, Hey, am I going to talk to these people again? Am I going to share information from that with them? So even if he's not actually relating direct information about the case, just the rapport building of sitting there eating, talking about, you know, things that don't even matter are so important because it's getting him talking. It's getting him used to, um, you know, having a conversation and it gets him, you know, more likely to actually start talking about the case and where the bodies are located.
1: Special Agent Cadu carries that progress into a third interview later that day and then a fourth interview the following morning. She's joined again by Agent Dietz, and as things get going, Hoffman, he almost seems like a different person compared to those first couple interviews. He's openly chatting with the two agents. You
0: guys
3: just starting your day? Well, pretty much. It's about 9.30, a little bit earlier. You normally an early riser, or or do you stay up late and sleep in
2: So all of the rapport building that was done up until this point, um, played such a huge role because now he feels comfortable. Now he knows them, you know, Kadu is reading him a message off of her cell phone from his mother, letting him know that, you know what, no matter what you say, your mom's going to still love you. Um, she's releasing this burden of guilt um, and actually giving you permission to tell the truth. And none of that would have been possible if they wouldn't have done the hours and hours and days and days of rapport building with Matthew.
1: But the agents, They know they can't keep making small talk and building rapport forever. They need to start getting some answers. But by this point, Hoffman has spent more than 10 hours talking to investigators without offering any clues as to what happened to Tina Herman, Cody Maynard, and Stephanie Sprang. But this interview, it was going to go a little differently. The agents didn't know it, but Hoffman, he had a plan. As soon as they all sat down in the room, he mentioned he was going to need a bathroom break pretty soon. And after finishing his breakfast, he speaks with Agent Dietz alone, asking a few questions about the recording equipment in the room.
3: So isn't that a microphone? No.
1: Then Hoffman asks for his bathroom break, seemingly a normal request.
3: This coffee's kind of getting weak in the bathroom. Yeah. All right. No. You're not going to try and overpower me and take my gun or anything, right? No, you might. If you want to, you can give it to someone. Okay. I only use the
1: bathroom. Once he's alone with Agent Dietz in the bathroom, where there is no recording equipment, Hoffman says he remembered what happened. All of it. Agent Dietz would report that Hoffman said he had a dream about a food processing plant, and in the dream, he opened up a garbage bag and saw chopped up body parts and then everything, it came back to him, including the location of the bodies of the three people who were still missing. He said he wanted to write it down on a piece of paper and have a legal document created through an attorney so that the information would only be revealed upon his death. He then said he wanted to stage an escape attempt during which Agent Dietz could shoot and kill him, triggering the release of the document. When Agent Dietz said he couldn't agree to that plan, that he couldn't kill anyone for information, Hoffman said he had only been pretending to remember the location of the bodies to try and get himself killed. When the two returned to the interview room, Agent Dietz, fills special agent, could in on what happened in the bathroom.
3: Matt said that he had a that the dream dealt with a food processing plan. Um, where they chopped food up, and that there were be- look, garbage bags there mm-hmm. that were that then he opened or looked in the garbage can or bag, not sure which, and um, he saw you know body parts, you know, chopped up stuff, and that that put a knot in his stomach. He stopped me. He wanted me to stop. That, if There's a part here. That, a knot in his stomach, and that he wanted, and that then. It came back to him, you know, about what he had done.
2: He did what any good investigator or detective would do, he brought Matt immediately back to the room and he basically reiterated everything that was said outside of the room. Because if for some reason, you know, Agent Dees was making that stuff up, Matthew would have had the opportunity to say, I don't know what you're talking about. That's crazy. I never said that. But Matthew never says that because he is basically reiterating everything that was just said when they were outside of the room. What Matthew
3: wanted to do was he wanted... He said that this dream had revealed to him where, where the bodies were and that he knew it all and he's willing to give it up. Mm-hmm. What he wanted to do was he wanted to write it to um, some lawyer he might obtain and then have us go out on a trip to show him where it was mm-hmm. and then try and escape and have us shoot him and kill him. He wanted me mm-hmm. to agree to that, mm-hmm. to do that, that was part of the deal. And then the lawyer would reveal that upon his death the location of the bodies. Mm-hmm. That's why... He wanted us to go in the bathroom, take my phones off, all that. Gotcha. Um, and I told him, obviously, that I couldn't do that.
1: Oh, no. Hoffman goes back to saying he doesn't remember anything. And about 30 minutes later, the interview comes to an end.
2: We're done. We apparently are told we are done. Keep everything we said in mind for you. Talk, think about it and think about what you can do for yourself after you talk to an attorney and a deal that you can make for yourself. If we're talking about what's best for you and if that's most important to you, talk to an attorney and they'll let you know that that's the best deal you're going to get if you come forward and don't let us continue on with having hundreds of volunteers, dredging up everything, that that's going to be the best thing for you. But we have to stop. It's very, very frustrating to have someone come that close to a confession, um, give you information, and then basically try and take it back at the end. Um, It's frustrating. Obviously, we don't take it back. Whatever you've said, you've said. You know, there's no take backs when you admit to things like that. I can't imagine how frustrated and deflated they were after They spent that much time with him. He started to admit some things in the bathroom. They brought him back in. They reiterated everything that he had said. And then he kind of starts stepping backwards. You know, I can just imagine their frustration with Matt at that point.
1: On November 18th, four days after Hoffman's arrest, Knox County Sheriff David Barber announced an update in the investigation.
0: Today, this investigation took uh, a major turn that we have uh, discovered and recovered uh, the remains of uh, Cody Maynard, Stephanie Sprang, and Tina Herman. The discovery of uh, these bodies was as a result of information provided by Matthew Hoffman.
1: Following these interviews, in exchange for an agreement that prosecutors not seek the death penalty, Hoffman provided, in writing, the location of the remaining three victims. It was a hollow, 60-foot-tall beech tree located in a nearby wildlife preserve.
0: The bodies were located in a wooded area inside of garbage bags in a hollow tree uh, off of Yankee Street, which is west of Frederictown here in Knox County.
1: As part of the agreement, Hoffman also provided a full written confession in which he admitted to breaking into the family's home, stabbing the three victims to death, and dismembering their bodies.
2: I do not think they would have gotten the confession without the hours and the days spent with Matthew trying to get answers from him. Every moment that they spent with him, they planted in his mind information that he took back to his cell. And I believe that he ultimately used to make the decision to actually come forward and confess. They told him numerous times to do the right thing. Uh, They told him his mom wanted him to do the right thing. And I have no doubt all of that information that they planted inside of his head during those hours and days uh, played a huge role in the reason why he came forward and finally confessed.
1: After confessing, Hoffman ultimately pleaded guilty to 10 counts related to the murders and the kidnapping
2: harsh words from
3: family members as a man that admits he killed three of their loved ones in knox county and hid their bodies in a tree
0: heaven has our stephanie tina and
4: Cody. hell will have you and i hope you get the jailhouse justice you deserve maybe god can forgive you someday but i'm sure the hell never will
3: matthew hoffman pleaded guilty today to the murders of tina herman cody maynard and stephanie sprang along with the kidnapping and rape of a 13 year old girl
1: on January 6th, 2011, Matthew Hoffman was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. So what do you think about this week's interrogation? We'd love to hear your thoughts. You can share them in our Facebook group, Inside the Crime Vault. Anything you say is a Vault Studios production. Special thanks to our expert, Agent Tammy Lee, with the Colorado Bureau of Investigation. You can learn more about our podcasts, including Bardstown and the Officer's Wife, at VaultStudios.com. Vault Studios executive producers are Adam Ostro and Will Johnson. This episode was produced by Reed Redmond. For Vault Studios, I'm Eric Flack.